Do not underestimate the importance of developing deep and sustained relationships with everyone that you need to work with to achieve your goals. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Tanisha Karina's family fled from the Philippines to America and settled in decidedly non-Asian Alabama. She traveled through young adulthood and had her first awareness that many Americans live on the fringe, desperately needing both healthcare and social services. Since then, Tanisha has spent her career in healthcare seeking to strike the perfect balance between being an expert and being a leader. In so doing, she's always looking for new ways to balance the concepts of cost and caring for the most vulnerable to best define the true essence of rational decision-making in our healthcare system. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Lisa. <laughs> Do you know people are starting to tease us about that now? <laughs> so yes, Lisa, yes, David. Um, so Lisa, you just got back from what sounds like a really interesting uh, trip to uh, Ireland. Is, yes, I did. Is, is it all Brexit all the time? It's all Brexit all the time. It actually really is. I mean, I was there for Health Excel and Health Beacon uh, discussions and meetings and presentations, which were great. And moving and shaking. And moving and shaking generally, and also whiskey drinking. That's one but, does. Uh, which yeah. I did also. But... Um, you know, it's fascinating to watch over there the Brexit discussion because there's just tremendous anxiety about it. About, And I think the biggest thing they're worried about is the that literally the UK could break up, you know, after all these years. Uh, it's kind of fascinating. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the companies are moving to Dublin from London to escape, know, escape <laughs> effectively. But there's even concern that the troubles on the border in Ireland could, you know, oh, be restarted. That would be catastrophic, as a yeah. Of this. It's really, it's quite fascinating to watch. Seems and, so unnecessary, doesn't yes. it? Yes. And while I was there, the uh, the famous Pence visit to the Trump property was uh, occurring. It was quite a, quite the news item. Did it interfere with the Trump property you were staying at? <laughs> oh, yes. My golf game was really impacted. <laughs> Anyways, while we're on not that subject, Tanisha Carino is on the phone with us today. So great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And when we last spoke, you were on your way to Alabama for vacation, as I recall. Oh my God, this song makes me think about the eighth grade grade dance. (laughs) (laughs) Not the Waffle House? (laughs) Yeah, really. So Tanisha. Piggly wiggly. The last time I spoke to you, you were on your way to Alabama. Uh, for vacation with your family. What led you to Alabama this time and in the first place? That's right. I think the last time we spoke, I had to pull over at the local Dollar General of some small town. I don't even remember where in Alabama, just so I can get enough of a phone reception. It was it was a relatively unusual path for my family to have ended up in Alabama, but actually an unusual path for us to even be in the United States. So, um, you know, for us as a family, my mom and dad grew up in the Philippines thinking that the Philippines would always be their home. And then lo and behold, my father became a revolutionary in the late 60s when he, on a college campus, saw that the Marcos government was starting to show symbols of being a dictatorship. 
And so he became one of these revolutionaries for a little while, ended up in jail. And then after having a family and wanting to pursue his Ph.D., decided that maybe staying in the Philippines wasn't in the cards for he, myself and my brother and my mom and dad. So he picked up. Wow. We moved. And we first started in Minnesota. He luckily found a faculty position at Auburn University in Alabama. And that's where we were starting in 1981. So what draws you back there with your family now? You know, I quintessentially married the boy next door when I was 30. And, you know, we didn't know each other at all. But what I found is that there we I had created and luckily we'd grown up in a very tight knit community of people who you know, found themselves in a college town in the middle of Alabama. And we just have a lot of friends and family still back there. And so my, I call it home still, and my children call it home. What was the acclimatization process like? Because, uh, you know, it, like, as sort of Lisa was alluding to in the introduction, it, you know, it, 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 seems, like it, it seems like sort of unusual for someone, you know, it, it, to, I, I, maybe I have an overly homogeneous view of much of, um, of, 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 of much of the re, of much of Alabama outside of Huntsville. Um, uh, but it sounds like what, how did you find what kind of community did you find there? What was your experience? It was it was incredibly I learned very early on in my childhood that exceptionalism could be a good and a bad thing. When you walk around Auburn today, and it's still a fairly small town, it's about 40,000, 50,000 people, mainly really still anchored by a university as like the one major industry in the, in the city. Now, though, you have 10% of the population is Asian because you've had Kia and Hyundai actually set up manufacturing facilities in that state and in Georgia. But growing up, there was probably less than 1% of the population that was Asian. In fact, I didn't ever look at an Asian man as a romantic interest because every Asian man I ever met growing up was a family member or somebody really close to our family. <laughs> so it was not when I met when I met other Filipinos from, you know, LA, Pasadena, San Francisco, it they were they were completely confused as to how I grew up Asian in Alabama as well. So I you know, I understand you even competed to be Miss Junior Alabama or Junior Miss Alabama. How how did you do in that? I mean your competition must have looked somewhat different than you. <laughs> I did. So, like, on one hand, I I think that by not being either a Caucasian or African-American in Alabama, I was exceptional. So people did not understand what it was to be Asian. And then on top of that, I was incredibly nerdy and needed to find ways to pay for college my senior year. And Junior Miss Lee County was one of the most high-profile scholarship programs in the South. And so I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to like enter in, I'm going to win the nerd award, I'll get some money for college <laughs> that'll hopefully pay for books. I'm definitely not going to win because there are these like beautiful Southern debutante girls that had decided they were going to be in Miss Lee County when they were five years old. And then lo and behold, I'm standing on stage and they announced my name and color me completely surprised, but I had one first runner-up. So even dreams in Alabama can come true. <laughs> color you blonde and blue-eyed? <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. Did you ever consider going on in the pageant world? Was that something that you thought about? 
No, I mean, this is so indicative of who I am as a person. I was super excited to be first runner up because it meant that I didn't have to advance to the state competition, but I had, but I got like the largest cash prize. <laughs> no. Hang on, hang on. Of the many questions one can ask, what was your talent? I danced. I was also a majorette, but I was too nervous about trying to twirl my baton on a stage with all those lights. So I, I did the classic Enya dance. I don't even remember what Enya song it was. But it was watery, color, and flowy enough that I think I passed. <laughs> I would pay money to see that. So, you were always a community-minded gal. You're so, and you uh, were a Girl Scout, and you volunteered as a social worker and loved taking care of people. Was that a nature or nurture thing? What led you to to transfer your sort of empathetic style of of, of being to the healthcare world? You know, my parents. The, the word in my family had always been sacrifice. You know, they sacrificed for us to come here. And the, the other sort of tenet in the family is, I don't care what kind of talent you end up with, but it better be used to try to help other people. And, you know, when growing up in Alabama, that meant being in Girl Scouts, being involved in church. And over the years, that's always been part of it. I don't, I, I, I always think about, you know, what can I do that might be different than others that can actually be a complement to other organizational goals that, that I can contribute to. So that's, that's really manifested itself in, you know, college, me working at Atlanta, me being on boards here in D.C. for direct service organizations that are dealing with poverty here in, in Washington, and then following a career in healthcare that, in my opinion, is one of the most critical areas for us as, as a society to get right, to allow people to have productive lives and to be able to be as healthy as they can for as long as they can. You So the, let's talk about the AIDS Atlanta experience you had. You were at Emory University, moved to the big city in Atlanta. Um, you said you'd never, you know, knowingly uh, interacted with gay people before. Big city was different. Tell us about that experience and the impression it left on you, and uh, particularly how it's impacted you today. I was a sociology major. I'd signed on after my freshman year to to actually pursue a major in sociology. And I had a professor at the time that said, you know, there's a organization in town called Aid Atlanta, and they're really looking for somebody to come in. And I had just finished reading and the band played on, which is, as many of us know, back then it was such a testament to really telling the story of the fight that the HIV positive community had. So I I said, fine. So twice, a week in the afternoons, I would go in and my job would be to sit and listen to the new clients that were coming into the agency and try to identify what kinds of needs that they had so that I could pass along that information to caseworkers that were working in Aid Atlanta. Later on, I became a caseworker myself. But at that time, these intakes could take 30 minutes. Somebody could come in and say, you know, I don't have a physician. Can you tell me where I can get care, either at a clinic or a doctor? That's, that's easy. But there are other times that those intakes would take two to three hours. There would be issues with housing, issues with disability, um, issues with trying to find a physician, food insecurity. And for me, it really just really emphasized for me that there are all of these different 
social safety net systems have to all work together for somebody to remain healthy and be a productive member of society. But that is, in some ways, a total contrast to growing up in a small town. In a small town, we absolutely still need safety nets. But in a lot of ways, these small towns have families, friends, neighbors, your church group. It's so small that everybody ends up pitching in. And in Atlanta, particularly working with some of the most vulnerable parts of society that were disenfranchised, they didn't have that. They didn't have that same level of community. And having good policy and having a functional local environment was just critical for them. So you, you know, ended up taking a path towards a PhD in public health and, and, um, you know, thinking about this community-minded approach to healthcare in a pretty broad way. And along the way, you went and got a Fulbright uh, scholarship, which is pretty cool, and went to the Netherlands to, to study, I think, the role of technology in healthcare. How did that come to be? I mean, what, that seems like a very much of a left turn to think about technology, you know, from the, from the path you'd come. You know, it's funny. I think that when people look at my background, it looks so coherent as if, like, I had this all planned out. But in fact, a, a lot of the decisions I feel like I've made over the years working at Atlanta, and I told you about the professor, were really inspired by having one person in life that said, hey, why don't you think about this? So for me, you know, my path actually in the world of technology started out with Dr. Nancy Cass, who at that time was a prominent faculty member in bioethics at Johns Hopkins. I'd been talked into trying to get all of the department's courses online. I didn't know anything about ethics. So she said to me, I really need some help. I was like, I don't have no idea about bioethics. She was like, I don't really care about that, but I do need you to help me put something online. And we had this really interesting conversation about the trade-offs we all make in society, the way that we love the new, new thing, new innovation, but at some level as society we have to grapple with, how do we all pay for it? And ironically at the time, Nancy's husband, Sean Tunis, had just taken over at Medicare in, the, in, the, in what it was called then the coverage analysis group. And he was for the first time really pushing Medicare's authority to understand and to manage the entry of new technology going into the Medicare program. So I started working for him and really fell into the world of medical technology policy and health technology assessment. And after after the Bush-Gore election, I was really looking to have an exit out of the U.S. for a little while. And he said, you know what, why don't you apply for a Fulbright? And it was one of the shortest applications that existed. I'd had a boyfriend, ex-boyfriend at the time, that had been a Fulbright twice over. And I said to myself, well, if that dude could do it, I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I applied. The Netherlands didn't require me to have any kind of language background. And they were the first ones to come back to me to say, we'd like you to come over. And off I went to the Netherlands. Great story. It's just, that's just like so how life happens, right? right? It right. is. Totally is. <laughs> what what, what so city were you in, in the Netherlands? What, what town were you in? I was in Rotterdam. And I literally, uh-huh. as I was leaving the airport in Atlanta, and my, my husband today was the one who dropped me off. We weren't married at the time. 
I was thinking to myself, I don't even know where Rotterdam is. I remember being on the airplane and looking at the map of the Netherlands and being like, I'm going to land here in Amsterdam, and I'm going to have to find a way to get to Rotterdam. That's right. And Rotterdam was very similar to Baltimore, which I had just left. It was this harbor city. It had been completely bombed out during World War II, so it was not this beautiful, quaint-looking canal city of Amsterdam. It almost looked exactly like Baltimore, so I felt very at home from the (laughs) get-go. Did you feel at home eating French fries with mayonnaise? Because I could never get over that. I don't know. That's just weird. <laughs> did you get to the? Did you? Um, so this was a pre-restoration of the Night Watch at the Ricks Museum, right? That's right. It was pre that, and it you know, and and Rotterdam was definitely not the hot modern city that it is today. <laughs> it was still sort of considered to be Amsterdam, then The Hague, then Rotterdam. So you uh, finished all the waffles you could eat in the Netherlands, and made your way back to the States. Um, and lo and behold, the Medicare Modernization Act was, was enacted by Congress, and you had an opportunity to build from that, as I understand it, joining Avalier. Uh, tell us about that. I mean, that's really your first sort of commercial role, right? And you were a big shot there. I mean, I, this is where, I first, where we first met. Um, and... Um, uh, I mean, it's doing really terrific work at a very high level in this uh, organization. It'd be great to better understand sort of how that came to be and sort of what your focus was there. Absolutely. And this was classic. I'm sitting in Rotterdam and I get a phone call from a friend of mine, Perry Bridger, who I'd work with, who I'd actually gone to school with, had biostats with at Hopkins and then had gone to work with side by side at Medicare when I was finishing my PhD. He called and said, hey, I'm in this new company. It's called Health Strategies, but we're about to change our name. And it's headed up by this guy named Dan Mendelson, who's a real wonderkin. He had left the Clinton administration and really sees that there's a path for an organization that really understands policy but can interpret it to people who have to make the business decisions. And I was like, oh, I really like you, Perry. So I'll come over. I'll meet with Dan. And in the span of a 30-minute conversation, I walked out of the room and I was like, that's Dan Mendelson guy. He's really bright. He's really fun. And everybody I meet is really smart. So there I go. So I started at Avalier. Literally, I think I started right after the MMA was passed. And there were many, many nights that we were just combing through the provisions and trying to forecast how the government would actually begin to implement these provisions and write regulations and actually have an impact on the private sector. Mm-hmm. And it, in classic mode, I got sort of stuck since I was the last kid on the, on the, on the, on the boat. We were like 26, <laughs> 27 people at the time. What year was this, by the way? What year was this? 2004, I believe. Okay. So right after. And um, I got stuck with all the provisions that nobody really wanted or understood. <laughs> so that became... Everything related to Medicare coverage was that was in the MMA. All of the early value-based purchasing provisions that were in the MMA and all those things that said at that time quality measures, which nobody really knew what to do with. Still don't. Um, <laughs> and that just became, there was enough interest in those random provisions that over a couple of years, we created a center on evidence-based medicine. And that became one of the most successful and largest centers within Avalier where I met David, where our goal as a group was to help people understand the future of payers and the importance of defining clinical research programs that incorporated what payers would want and need that, hey, may be different than the regulator. 
and also the way that the payer and provider communities were trying to align on a sense for what incentives needed to be in place to not just change payment, but to promote and ensure that quality care was being delivered. What do you think has been the progress in this in this particular set of issues? Because it seems to me here we are 15 years later or so, and the same conversations are still going on over and over and over. At least that's my perception. Do you, do you think differently? I think that taking the two issues of, you know, do payers have a role now in how medical product developers think about its future? I think that we've seen dramatic changes from the late 90s, right? We see so many dramatic changes that today many medical product developers, and David can attest to this, don't even want to enter certain therapeutic areas or indications because they're not lucrative enough. Um, So in that way, I do think that the the payer's signal, health technology signal to the marketplace has had profound impact to how we innovate and the choices that we make from an R&D perspective. Quality measures is, is an area that I like to refer to is that there's this whole quality mafia out there of all these people that have been entrenched in the world of quality measurement. I think that the, the, the impetus is right, right? That there are more powerful incentives if you can tie financial incentives of rewards or penalties to doing the right thing from a process or design of your organization or outcomes around improving quality. That makes sense. The way that we've approached it has been letting every flower bloom possible, every metric be created by any organization, so that if you look at how we even identify how do you improve quality for diabetes, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of measures. And then on top of that, it's been applied to a fragmented delivery system that you know, you've got different metrics if you're a hospital that you want to focus on, but then you might have different insurers that also might want to focus in that area that have completely different measures. So that level of fragmentation just doesn't probably allow for the true intent of what you could do if you had real alignment with the payer community around the right sets of measures and that type of top-to-bottom implementation. Can I, can I uh, push, uh, sort of push on one of these topics? Because I'm, I'm really fascinated by the concept of metric fatigue. There is a terrific piece, um, uh, in, you know, I guess, in The Incidental Economist um, a, that sort of t- took off from both a piece that David Blumenthal wrote, but also a piece that a, a military, like some general, I think, or, or, or someone wrote, essentially saying that when you have so many metrics, like there gets to be a point where you wind up optimizing, you know, well, this metric is designed to improve this outcome and this metric, but they're, they're all looked at in isolation. And when you start to put them all together, what you actually have is a little bit of ethics fatigue because you couldn't possibly hit all of them and like get anything done. And so you're sort of winding up forcing the practitioners, whether in the military, which is where the general was discussing, or in in, in the clinical sense, to sort of check things and say, oh, yes, I, I, I asked about this when they obviously haven't. And, you know, how you sort of balance everyone's individual, let's measure, 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 with a little bit of the reality of if there isn't some kind of... Um, I guess Blumenthal called it core metrics, but but just in general, the process seems to get out of hand. And I was wondering what your experience with that is. 
I I completely agree, particularly when you allow for everybody to come up with their own set of metrics. But I would contrast that with the power of creating metrics in the HIV com- excuse me HIV community and the idea of a ninety 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 goal and the end to HIV by twenty thirty. You know, those kinds of metrics that try to pull a big community of people under it have a lot of power in terms of, A, recognizing who needs to be under the Big Ten, B, having conversations about who, what are these metrics, are they the right metrics, having something that is a narrative that is compelling and motivating, and then everybody having to take a look at that and say, what am I doing? So when I worked at GSK and we supported Vive, which as you all know is a huge player in the HIV market, those 90-90 metrics made its way into our performance goals as an organization. And we had to talk about how everything we did was driving towards those goals. It's such, it's such an interesting topic I, I, because yeah. how um, the broader, you know, of um, how on the one hand, I mean, what you're talking about is the value of metrics of when you measure, you know, you get to, me- you have to improve things, you have to measure them, how, um, and it provides a way to get everybody on the same page, sort of a common vocabulary. And in the context that you're describing, you're describing really sort of the unifying power, the organizational focus that it provides. And yet, how in other situations where we've all seen, it becomes sort of this thing to be gamed. I and mean, there's something that said once, once a, like once a salary is tied to a particular, mm-hmm. um, uh, something you can measure. It almost, but even if the uh, it it becomes so gameable that the original value of it or, um, is, is it becomes more questionable because you everyone just starts sort of gaming. It's like studying it. for the grade instead of for the learning, right? It's like right, you know, yeah, but, but like yeah. you sort of have these workarounds, and mm-hmm. I mean, but but I'm planking on the name, but that the phenomenon I, I wrote about actually has a, sort of this name. So it's such an interesting balance because you really are pointing out what all the positives are of being able to. Um, metricize things and be able to measure things. But then sometimes people get so wrapped up in it that, you know, that there are things that there are more things in life than you can measure. And a lot of, you know, the most important things aren't measurable, but it doesn't mean they don't matter. Yeah. Well, and I also, you know, when I went into, when I, when I became the head of Faster Cures, one of the aha moments for me is that in the world of biomedical innovation, this idea of the bench to the bedside, like we really have very few common sets of metrics across all those various actors. And when you think about where we are with value-based purchasing here in contrast in, in what we're talking about now, it's almost as if we started in the middle, which is like a focus on metrics to drive accountability. And we really didn't take a whole lot of time to have conversations among the healthcare community about what is it we should measure, in my opinion, right? I don't see that same narrative, that unifying narrative of 90-90-90 goal in the U.S. healthcare system. And maybe it's because everybody would be wanting to focus on their particular therapeutic area, who knows, but it's that kind of setting a common narrative that... Still feels like we're missing. Well, it's funny. I mean, and we're finally, finally, I think just in the last, I don't know, five years, right? talking about measurements that patients want to see, right? You know, which is hilarious that, you know, we finally remembered that part. Um, so I think, you know, it, it adds to the complication and there's this weird dichotomy between the quote unquote scientists and the quote unquote people, right? Who is it more important to measure, you know? chemical pathways and they're in and they and they work versus does a patient feel good or bad 
you know, after they take the drug or, or whatever it may be. Um, when you th- So you, you're at the Milken Institute's Faster Cures uh, organization now running that. You know, how are you, are you do you th- incorporate these things into what you're doing? What's your mission there? Our mission, you know, Faster Cures has been an organization for over 15 years, and we were we were actually started in our chairman Mike Milken's mind when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer back in 94, so beyond even 15 years. And at that point, he knew he was going to start the Prostate Cancer Foundation, but he also recognized that there are systemic issues that were preventing science, good science, getting to patients and being translated in the form of new medical innovations. So that's where we had come in. And we were yoked to the Milken Institute, which at that point, 15 years ago, really was an economic think tank, access to capital, financial markets. And we were their sort of healthcare, healthcare center. And that's changed over the last few years. So we're now one of four healthcare centers in the Milken Institute. But what hasn't changed is that our focus still remains on this idea of how do you create systems that get at trying to have a system that is faster, cheaper, and better for patients. This idea that when I think about what patients really want, they want more, better, faster, cheaper. Every patient, that's what they want. And the system doesn't deliver that for them. So I I have loved the idea that we have transcended any one actor and that we can bring them all under a tent. And the people that tend to really be engaged with us are folks that are dissatisfied. They want to see it be better. And they can be veterans of the industry that know in their heart of hearts that despite how productive or profitable the industry, the pharmaceutical and device industry may be, that we could do better. And, and the people that have impressed me the most that in my interactions have been these parents who never wanted to be part of this biomedical system and have found a child, they have a child or a loved one, and they have to get engaged because there is no other path for them. So, Tanisha, I couldn't agree more about the uh, the the how um, – when people have this sort of personal stake in the way you describe it for parents, this is the kind of thing that Zach Kahaney has absolutely focused on as well, um, uh, you know, in, in the work that he's done. Um, a faster cures question that I sort of have for you is how, you know, the abstract idea of, you know, accelerating bench to bedside, crossing the gap, you know, everyone's talking about this. Are there a couple of concrete things that you can point to that says, we've studied it, and these are some things that we've implemented, and that seem to be improving things? Absolutely. I think early on in 94, the focus was on doubling the NIH budget and trying to get the American public excited about following a path, if you're a talented person, into biomedical research. I think we've done really well there. And its its second role phase, we were really focused on translational research and the gap of talent, the gap of resources, the recognition that there really is this idea of translational research that needed to happen. And so we were very involved in the creation of, of the NIH um, Institute, NCATS. It's really focused on this particular area. And then with me coming in, um, I have loved building on a lot of the work Fasticures has done with the patient and research, nonprofit research community, where we've invested in over 100 organizations and helping them develop their capabilities of partnering with other organizations, whether it's academics or the industry or government around research. 
And so for us, and there are th- for me, there are two really interesting ideas that we're working on. The first one actually goes back to the idea of metrics. When I came into Fast Cures, it really did shock me that despite the fact that we'd passed 21st Century Cures, nobody nobody really had a good grasp of what, where is it broken in the system? You know, should we be doubling the NIH budget? You know, should we be creating new sources of capital? Does philanthropy play a big enough role in actually accelerating cures? Why is it that we have 65% of our pipelines devoted to oncology and nothing in some of the disease areas, the chronic disease areas that have the most impact? So we've been working with RAND Europe and others to really understand how do you begin to measure this area? And then the second area that I'm personally really intrigued by and why the Milken Institute is such a unique place is in the notion of can you find different sources of capital and different types of organizations who may not have the same need for the, the risk returns that the traditional industry has that could get into the area of drug development, have the talent and capacity and ability to do that. And so those are the two areas that I, I personally am really excited about. So this sort of like venture, like would this is this sort of like venture philanthropy for um, like uh, ant- new antibiotics, for example. It could be traditional philanthropy and what we've seen in carbacks and government. So government and philanthropy working together to really create the, a strong pipeline of of antibiotics and what they've done through carbacks. It could also be venture philanthropy, which is what I think the most high-profile example cystic fibrosis did, right, and um, their monetization, what that led to. But it also is, you know, in the world of the Milken Institute, like capital and the amount of money was almost never the problem. There are tons of different kinds of investors that you all are so familiar with that are taking even lower returns that that there's a belief that an impact investor could have a very different role to play in the world of biomedical innovation and get into areas that maybe are not as interesting for our traditional industry. What is the impetus for them primarily then, just to, to do good in the world, to make an impact? If, if they're not looking for return, what kind Lisa of return so are they skeptical. looking for? Lisa is so skeptical. No, I'm people? not skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not skeptical. I, I actually am not skeptical at all because I've seen a lot of a lot of activity by not-for-profits and others to do these kinds of things, and I think it's meaningful. Um, I even see for-profits forming not-for-profits to do things like this, right? But I think what is the – so back to measurement. How are you going to know you did something good? What did you get? I, that's a great question. There's For me – so for right now, I'm involved in a collaboration between One Mind and the National Academies of Medicine, focused on raising a $10 billion fund to invest in mental health, to actually both speed new innovations to market, but to get innovations adopted that we know to already work. And what's been really interesting to me is that there are a whole range of impact investors that haven't traditionally looked at investing in something like mental health that are interested in this. Um, and, and that's exciting. And there are also, as you would imagine, people like the World Bank who are interested in this. And how you begin to tie the idea of a sovereign wealth fund or a government who traditionally thinks of development financing and actually having a role in this, this particular way to me is really exciting. So that is exciting. So, okay, let's, we're coming to the end of our show here, but I got to ask you about this one last thing, which is, um, 
and I asked you about what you do for fun, you put all your scholarship and accomplishment aside and said what you really love is karaoke. And that's your go-to song is Dress Me Up by Madonna. So my question for you, that left many questions for you. I'll put those aside too. But my real question for you is, if our healthcare system had a song, if our healthcare system could pick a song for karaoke, what should it be? Oh, man. Uh, Oh. And? I I don't, our healthcare system song. Let me just, this is a hard one. Really? I think I would say... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what I would say. What would you say? Uh, let's see. What would I say? Good question. I didn't think about the answer for myself. <laughs> but something about chaos. I was it's thinking, the end of the world I was thinking as we back know it. to my Madonna, like, just like a prayer, because God, right? <laughs> at this point. I don't know. And that's on. they'll take you there and I'll get our system. You know me. Sure. I, 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 I would go with my favorite everybody, everyone, everybody knows. <laughs> The, the, uh, Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Thank you guys again for taking interest in my life and being so amazing. I really do love your format at Tectonic. Oh, well, we're huge about. Tanisha Carino fans. Huge fans, so. huge fans Thank as you, you know. Thank you for being on the show. Good to talk to you. Thank you all. Have a good day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Turn it up. Today's guest, Tanisha Carino, was speaking to us from the East Coast while David and I man our stations at Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley. She's such a cool person. I didn't know half of those. I've been, you know, working with her for a while um, over the years. and I didn't know so many of those aspects of her story. She's so incredible. She really is. And I think, you know, she's got such an incredible intellect, but she's so warm and friendly and fun loving when you meet her. And it's like... What a, you know, yeah, for like, a special person. Yeah, like and this sort of a serious health policy person on the one side and then actually relatable on the other. How often do you see that? I, I would pay <laughs> great money to see her dancing to dress me up, I got to tell you. <laughs> All right. So you can follow David Shawitz's writing at Forbes and the occasional Wall Street Journal Review. And you can follow Lisa's writings at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Well, have a great day, David. Cheerio. Cheerio.